forgot to mention earlier that we, we do have churches over in Ukraine, and, and there's actually a way to give directly to them through our denomination. If you're interested in that, let me know. I'll also uh, send that link in the CBC Weekly that goes out later this week. So there is an avenue if anybody wants to give to our brothers and sisters over in Ukraine, there's an avenue to do that. And speaking of the CBC Weekly, I wrote in my pastor's note this last week that as we have watched the Russian invasion of Ukraine and following on the heels of a global pandemic, I can't help but be reminded of some of the words of Jesus, of the signs of the last days. Jesus tells his disciples to watch for signs in the last days. He says in Luke 21, 10 through 11, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Wars, sicknesses, earth-shaking terror, all signs, when you see them, that remind us that we are in the last days, and in fact have been ever since Jesus ascended. These things have been going on, and all of them are meant to alert us, to remind us to be looking out for and be ready for the return of the Lord. But right after those couple verses in Luke 21, 10 through 11, Jesus says something specific to his disciples, a specific warning for them about what they are going to endure before these last days fully come in and as they're ushered in. He says to his disciples in verses 12 through 19 that they are going to experience hardship. He says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. It's a promise specifically to his disciples of persecution. They will be put on trial. And that trial will be their opportunity to bear witness to the name of Jesus. What Jesus predicted in Luke 21 is exactly what happens here in Acts 4. What Jesus described comes true and begins to come true, and it will be repeated throughout the book of Acts, that they are put before leaders and put on trial. And the purpose of all of it, Jesus says in verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. The persecution and the trial of the early church is an example for us of what we are to do when we are in the midst of persecution, put before trial. What are we supposed to do? We are to bear witness about Jesus. In this chapter in Acts 4, we learn the appropriate Christian response to persecution and trial. So to help us walk through the passage, we'll ask one main question as we look to these early Christians as an example. How did the first Christians respond to their first trial? 
It was the first trial in the book of Acts, the first of several, but how did they respond? How did the first Christians respond to their first trial? What can we learn from it? We're going to see they responded in three main ways, in three approaches, three things they did in response to the trial. How did the first Christians respond to their first trial? First, verses 1 through 12, they affirmed salvation only in Jesus. The first thing Peter and John and the apostles do is they affirm salvation only in Jesus. As they are brought before the rulers of Jerusalem, they are asked what has empowered them to heal this paralyzed man that we talked about last week. By what power have you done this? And they will take that as their opportunity to affirm salvation only in Jesus. Let's look at first at verse 1. Acts 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So if you remember from last week where we were, what had happened? Well, they were going up to the temple to worship. They saw a paralyzed man who had been paralyzed from birth. Uh, Peter and John tell him to rise up, and he does, and he walks. By miracle of God, through the power of Jesus Christ, they heal a crippled man. And then they begin teaching and explaining, here's how this happened. is by the power, by the name of Jesus Christ. So they're gathering a crowd. People are watching as all this is going on as they're teaching Jesus. And then right during that same moment, up come the captain of the temple and the Sadducees with him. Captain of the temple would have served under the chief priest. He would have some ceremonial duties. But one of his obligations or responsibilities was the captain of the temple oversaw the temple police and had the power to arrest. So the captain of the temple comes along with Sadducees. You may remember who the Sadducees are. We have political parties like Republican and Democrat. In that time in Jerusalem, they had religious parties, Pharisee, Sadducee. The Sadducees were... They didn't have official power, but they happened to be the ones who were really connected with a lot of the priestly rulers and the elite and the leaders. And they had a lot more political influence at the time, even than the Pharisees did. And they had a particular theological bent about them, if you remember. Maybe you were taught this in Sunday school. They, they didn't believe in the resurrection at the end of the age, and that made them sad, you see. Right. Well, you can remember that. Um, they didn't believe in the resurrection at the end. So here are the apostles teaching resurrection in the name of Jesus, and they have a problem. So they're going to try and put a stop to this. They arrest them and bring them before the Sanhedrin to put pressure on them. And Luke just adds this little note. He could have put it anywhere, but he puts it here. It says, oh, and by the way, the church kept growing. Just before you go into this conflict, just a little reminder, the Lord kept adding people to his church, about 5,000 at that time. 5,000 men, so probably much larger. So we see, starting in verse 5, verses 5 through 12, the apostles are interrogated. Look at verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, 
let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What an awesome sermon that is, just in and of itself. It starts with them before the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling body in each city. It would be a Sanhedrin, either 23 or 71 men, 71 in the larger cities. And they were the priests and rulers, led by the chief priest. Uh, the former high priest at this time was a man named Annas, who was removed by Rome. And now the high priest at this time was Caiaphas. They're both called the high priest because one was former, one current. Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law, and they, along with John and Alexander, the high priestly family, kind of had control of the Sanhedrin at this time. And they come and they would sit in a semicircle as they judged the tribunal. So when it says they were placed in the midst of them, they were probably really placed right in the midst of the semicircle of the Sanhedrin formed around them. Uh, consider who this Sanhedrin is. These are the same people who put Jesus on trial and had him crucified. So if you think about Peter and John and the situation they find themselves in, the last time one of their number had been put before the Sanhedrin, he ended up on a cross. It was probably an intimidating room to be in. I remember when I was in seminary at some point, I was able to get a job at the seminary, and I kind of went from like student to colleague a little bit, just doing administrative work, but I remember being a little bit intimidated, a little bit scared to go in the faculty lounge for lunch, right? These were my professors, and then sitting with them, I certainly didn't open my mouth, and when they got into discussions and debates, I was just sitting in the corner just watching. I wasn't going to get involved. That was an intimidating room to be in. And they would all probably be upset by me comparing them to the Sanhedrin, but this was an intimidating room for the apostles to be in. And the Sanhedrin asked a simple question. By what power did you heal? They couldn't deny that healing had taken place. That cat was out of the bag. Everybody knew. So it wasn't a question of whether it happened. It was a question of how. And they're looking probably for the apostles to say something along the lines of, we have the power of God, and then they would charge them with blasphemy. Or it was by some other spirit, some other power, and they charged them with idolatry. So they're in this difficult situation, and Peter stands up and says, boldly, here, all of Israel, if you want to know how this wonderful and objectively good thing has happened, this healing of this man, it has happened by the power of the name of Jesus. Except that's not the only thing Peter says, right? I'm not a lawyer. I have a brother in law school, so he would be able to say this better than I could. But from what I've gathered on TV and movies, there is a a principle for those who are on trial. Uh, And that principle is only answer the question you're asked. Do not volunteer extra information that the attorney might use to incriminate you. Your job when you're on the stand is to only 
answer the question that's asked. Don't volunteer information. If they want more information, they can get it out of you. It's their job to ask the right questions. It's your job to only answer what is asked. Peter doesn't do that. All he had to say was, oh, it's Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. Why? Because Peter's objective here is not to save his own skin, but it is to bear witness to who Jesus is. And this is an opportunity to tell everyone who Jesus is. So he goes on. You want to know who did this? It's the man you crucified. The cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected. And throughout the Old Testament, there are various prophecies and speaking of a foundational stone or psalms that speak about the stone in the house of God. The cornerstone is the foundation of the whole building, the whole house. And every once in a while, prophecies about people who will stumble over that stone, that cornerstone will become a rock of offense and stumbling. And Peter is saying, this is what's going on. He is that stone. Jesus is the foundation of the house of God. And you, who are the builders who are supposed to be responsible for building up the house of Israel, are stumbling over him. Jesus is the cornerstone, the one you rejected. And he caps it all off. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Not only is Jesus the one who saved this man, he's the only one who can save this man. He is the only Savior, and there is salvation in no one else. We call this the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. He is the only means of salvation. And all of the Christian truths that we hold and all the core doctrines and beliefs that we have that are essential to our faith, this may be the most offensive to our world. To affirm this truth that there is salvation only in Jesus is something that will be offensive to our very pluralistic world. To affirm this, you will be called bigoted. You will be called arrogant. You will be called narrow-minded, exclusivistic. How dare you claim that there is only one way to be saved? To claim there is no other way of salvation, that no other faith can bring you to God. And all of us, if we are to be followers of Christ, will have to ask this question of ourselves, will we rather offend people or offend God? We will have to make this choice. Will we follow after God and proclaim the truth that there is only one way of salvation at the risk of offending others. Jesus himself taught this truth when he said in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This salvation is offered to all people, but it's a salvation that is only found in Jesus. And why is Jesus the only Savior? Because he's the only one to solve the problem of salvation. We live in a broken, fallen, sinful world. We have rebelled against our Creator. 
We live under the curse of sin and death, and we see it all around us. And God, our Creator, has provided only one means of reconciliation to Him. Only one way to make peace with God. Only one way to avoid His just judgment upon sin. Only one person has been sent by God as a son of God to live a perfect life, righteous in everything, and yet laying his life down on the cross for sins that we might find life in him. Only one person has been resurrected and ascended on high, ruling at the right hand of God. There is only one Jesus Christ, only one means of salvation. And to anybody who object to why aren't there more, I would ask, what else are you looking for? How offensive is it to Jesus Christ and to God to say, well, maybe there's another Savior that will do. Maybe God is holding out and has provided something better than the life of His own Son. God has provided the ultimate means of reconciliation, the ultimate sacrifice. There is no greater sacrifice, no other greater expression of love. There is only one way to be reconciled, and it is more than enough. It is through Jesus Christ. And to demand anything else or expect anything else is an arrogant position and a rejection of all that Christ has done. To say that maybe what he did was unnecessary, maybe there's another way. We, along with Peter, have to proclaim one way of salvation. It is in Jesus, and that is what they proclaim to the Sanhedrin. And that is their first response in the trial. Their second response is found in verses 13 through 22. They affirmed salvation only in Jesus, and then in verses 13 through 22, they refused to be silent about Jesus. They refuse to be silent about Jesus. The Sanhedrin will notice their boldness and want to silence them, and they will refuse. Verses 13 through 22. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying... What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. We'll stop there. The Sanhedrin was surprised to see the boldness of the apostles. I don't think they were used to people standing up to them and speaking... Uh, Courageously and prophetically in front of them, they were the educated, the ruling class, the powerful people in the room. And yet here we have a couple of fishermen, not formally trained by any of their approved rabbis, speaking boldly and courageously, applying Old Testament scripture and prophecy to the situation at hand, and they ask, where did these guys get this? And of course they answer, because they know they have been with Jesus how that happens. They had been with Jesus and that's where their boldness came from. So they have a problem, the Sanhedrin does, because we have these bold apostles right here. We have a miracle that we cannot deny that everybody sees. So what do we do? The only option left to them is to say, we, we silence them. And notice the specificity of the command. They say, 
You must no longer minister in the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus they are offended by. It's the name of Jesus that they want stopped. I think, and this is speculation, but I think they would have been fine. If, you know, if you guys want to keep gathering, that's fine. If you want to keep worshiping and praising in your own way, that's fine. But stop it with this Jesus talk. Because it seems to me that the world is perfectly fine if we are to gather together and worship, nobody's going to bat an eyelash. If we're going to go help the poor, everybody says, great job. If we're going to go assist in schools and help out in schools, the world will love us for it. If we're going to feed the hungry, uh, nobody's going to be opposed to that. And those are all good things that the church must do as witnesses to the kingdom of Christ. Those are good things. But where the world will get upset is when we say, this is all done in the power of the name of Jesus, the only Savior. And that's where the offense is. And that's where the offense is here for them. Stop doing this in the name of Jesus. And the church from the beginning says, whatever we do, we're going to do it in the name of Jesus Christ. We will not be silenced about this, though they were pressured to. Um, there's this weird sociological phenomenon known as the Streisand effect. Any of you know what that is? It comes exactly where you think it would, from Barbara Streisand. So this is true. In, in 2003, the California Coastal Records Project, the commission in the state of California, was studying coastal erosion, right? taking photographs and all that. And in their study, they took a picture of one home that happened to be Barbara Streisand's home. And her home was, was a pictured in the study of coastal erosion. She had a kind of beachfront property and all that. And Barbara Streisand didn't like it, so she sent and filed cease and desist letters. Now, what do you think happened because of that? It got more notice because everybody's wondering, why is Barbara Streisand filing cease and desist letters? So she wanted to hide it and get it stricken, but all that did was to serve to make it more prominent and everybody knew about this thing going on. So we call this now, a sociologist, the Streisand effect. It's when you try and cover something up and by your act of trying to cover it up, it makes it more noticeable. Like when you have a huge zit on your face, you say, like a pile of makeup will do. Why do you have all that makeup? Oh, yeah, there's a... If your home is anything like ours, there's been a certain song on repeat all the time. A certain Bruno we don't talk about. Some of you you with kids know what I'm talking about. We don't talk about Bruno. Right? That Disney movie. And when you hear the song, you you get, well, why don't we talk about Bruno? I want to talk about Bruno. You're telling me not to talk about Bruno. I want to hear more about Bruno. The more you try and silence to say, no, 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 we're not going to talk about this, the more you, you become interested. And that's what's going to happen here. The more they try and silence the church, the more the church is going to proclaim who Jesus is. We don't talk about Jesus? Well, you know, yeah, we do. We're going to make his name famous. And that's what the apostles determined to do in verses 18 through 22. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The apostles are charged by their ruling body not to speak. And their response, I think, is a textbook response, an example 
of civil disobedience. If we want to study what it looks like for Christians to engage in civil disobedience, I think we go here first. Because there's a couple truths that are at play. One, we as Christians have an obligation to, under God, submit to our authorities. God, as our ultimate authority, calls us to have a submissive heart towards him. And then he has placed authorities over us, whether it be parents, bosses, or the government, the state, has placed an authority over us for us to submit to. Paul's clear about this in Romans 13. This is a God-established state, and to rebel against the state is to rebel against what God himself has established. There's a rebellion against God. So we have this in place that we are obligated to submit to authorities. But the same Paul who wrote Romans 13 also said, we obey God rather than men. So there are times, and probably less often than we think, but there are times where what the state decrees is in direct contradiction to what God demands. And in those times, we obey God rather than men. So here, the apostles were under two different decrees. They had had received a commissioning, you will be my witnesses. Jesus himself had given them that commission. And then Jesus had rose and ascended on high. So he is the ultimate authority, and his authority wins out. And then they were given a contradicting Command, be silent. Knowing who their God is, they say, we cannot do that. Notice how they do it. They disobey civilly. They do not revolt. They do not take up arms. You'll never see this in the book of Acts and all of the persecution of the church. You'll never see the Christian storm, the capital or the temple. They are peaceful. They are respectful. Whether it is right or wrong for us to do this, you're going to have to be the judge. You'll have to decide. But we, we are going to keep speaking the name of Jesus Christ. And then they will humbly face whatever consequences come for their disobedience. They will accept whatever consequences come for their refusal to stay stay silent about Jesus. And they leave vengeance and judgment in the hands of God. In this moment, the Sanhedrin lets them go. Why? Why? Just a twist of irony, the Sanhedrin's afraid of the people. On the one hand, you have these fishermen, bold and courageous, fearing God rather than men. No power in and of themselves, but willing to humbly defy and say, this is where we have to go. And on the other hand, a Sanhedrin who had all the power, but afraid of what, how the people might respond. So they let them go. 
and the apostles and the church is determined to keep speaking the name of Jesus. They will not be silent about Jesus, which I think is cause for us to reflect how easily are we silenced about all that Jesus has done and all we have seen and heard. I'm going to poke mildly here. Right? So, a few months ago, you may remember back during Sunday school time, we had a God story, our story. Do you remember who did that? It was Russ, giving his testimony about all that Jesus has done in his own life. Do you know why it was Russ? Because we couldn't get anybody else. Like I'm poking lightly here, and I don't know who all was asked in there. But it just struck me as odd. And a church full of Christians, we can't give any, get anybody to talk about Jesus? We have to find the staff person to do it? Why is it so difficult for us to proclaim all that Jesus has done in our lives? When Kathy's trying to schedule that, she should be fighting off people who are anxious to proclaim the wonders of Jesus. And I know it's intimidating. It's hard speaking in front of people. I'm going to guess it was harder for John and Peter. The church is a safer place to speak, and if you can't speak here, where else can you, right? And some of you are going to have to figure out how, to, how this works out in your own jobs, right? Because you may have jobs that actually explicitly tell you you can't be an evangelist here. You can't be an apostolic and you can't go walking down the halls with a bullhorn preaching the gospel. That won't do. So you have to think critically, uh, how am I going to witness to Jesus Christ where I am? And I'm not sure I have the answer for all of you. You have to think carefully about that. So I won't presume to know how you must do it, but I am convinced you must, wherever you are, be a witness to Jesus Christ. And pray for the Lord's guidance and help and how you're going to go about doing that wisely, submissively, humbly, but boldly. In order to do that, you're probably going to need prayer, and that's exactly what the church turns to, actually, next, conveniently enough. Verses 23 through 31, after refusing to be silent about Jesus, they then, the church, prays for boldness to proclaim Jesus. They prayed for boldness to proclaim Jesus. That's their third response to this trial, this persecution. They prayed for boldness to proclaim Jesus. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The apostles are released. They go back to their gathering. 
you'll notice there's a contrast of the gatherings together. And Luke will kind of use the same phrase. They were gathered together. Some gathered together against the Lord and his anointed, but these Christians gathered together. And what do they do when they gather together? They pray. First response, we need to pray. Uh, maybe you've heard the helpful acronym, the tool for prayer, ACTS. So if you want to know how to pray, here's how you pray. ACTS. A-C-T-S. Adoration. And praise of God. Confession, confessing your own sins. Thankfulness, thanking God, giving thanks, and supplication, which is a fancy word of saying asking for stuff. Four components to prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That's simple stuff, right? They start with adoration. And this is probably a component of prayer that's lost in a lot of us, especially in our individual prayer. Part of prayer is praising God for who he is. This is how Jesus teaches us how to pray. When Jesus teaches people how to pray, where does he start? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Start your prayer with adoration, because that's what the church does. They start by praising God as the creator of all things. You are Lord over all. You are the one who has made the earth and the sea and the sky and the dry land and filled everything in it. You are the Lord over all, which is why it's especially foolish that some nations rage against you. So they bring in the context of Psalm 2, and they're quoting Psalm 2 here. And what Psalm 2 is all about, it's a, it's a psalm about the king, about the Lord's anointed, and the foolishness of the nations to ever stand up against God and his king, his anointed. If God is sovereign over all, then how foolish is it that these nations would rebel against him, and how foolish and, in the end, catastrophic will it be for all those peoples, all those nations who stand against God's anointed king. This is a psalm that I'm sure was rehearsed in the temple and synagogues. and Part of Jewish life in prayer, Psalm 2. A trust in God, his anointed king, who would rule over all who stood up to him. And I wonder, and I highly doubt, but I wonder if any of those who are using the psalm in worship ever considered that their own people would be the ones who fulfilled this psalm. Asking why the nations rage. They would ever think that it would actually be Israel, the rulers of Israel, that became the nation that raged against God and his anointed. That's how the church applies it here. Why do the nations rage? Why do the Gentiles rage? Surely it has happened here. Gentiles and Israelites, Pilate and Herod, conspired together against your son. And in doing so, all those who were Israelites, have shown themselves to be cut off and against God and his anointed. It must have been a shock that God's own people would turn against him. It was not a surprise to God. Why not? What does it say? These rulers did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
for the second time here already in these early chapters, the apostles affirm these rulers and the people who put Jesus to death are responsible for it, and this has been ordained by God. That God predestined this. He decided this beforehand. Not even just the event that it would happen, but who would be involved in it. I know predestination is a tricky topic and a tricky word for a lot of people. I've heard Christians say, I don't believe in predestination. I would say you have to, because it's in the Bible. In several places, Paul uses that word predestination. So if you are going to be a Bible-believing Christian, you have to believe in predestination, that God decides things beforehand. You also have to believe that humans are responsible for their actions. Now, how that all works out, we can have some fun philosophical conversations and theological conversations about, you know, and quibble about that. But these two things are affirmed in Scripture. And here's the point in this context. And I think the point in just about every context where God's sovereignty is lifted up, where predestination is talked about, every context in Scripture where people praise God for being in control, it is meant as a comfort. And specifically meant for a comfort for people who are hurting and people who are in danger and at risk of death or persecution. So when Israel lifts up God's sovereignty, they do so as a people who have often been oppressed or failed and are under the judgment of God for their own sins. And they take comfort in this fact that God is sovereign and in control. I think we often don't like this idea of predestination because we think we're more in control than we are and we haven't been desperate enough. We haven't been discomforted enough to be at that place where all the hope that we have left is that God is in control of this. And this is not a surprise to him. That was the comfort for the early church. We can be dragged before rulers and leaders, but we know that the death of Jesus Christ himself was not a surprise to God. And this is all part of his plan. God's sovereignty is a comfort for them. I think it's a comfort for us. Now, having praised God, lastly, they turn to supplication, the S in that ACTS acronym. They ask God for help. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I was thinking about this as I was reflecting on this passage. If we were in mortal danger, as some of our brothers and sisters around the world are, if our lives were threatened, what would we pray for? Maybe you pray for God to intervene, pray for safety, pray for escape, pray for God's judgment to come, for leaders against us to be removed, pray for protection and help, a hedge of protection, which I'm, I'm still not sure exactly what that is, but we pray for those things. What did they pray for? 
I find it fascinating. They didn't pray for protection or anything like that. They said, no, Lord, just keep letting us speak. That's what was the top of their priority. That, that was the highest priority for them. May we continue to speak with boldness. Whatever happens, whatever threat comes upon our lives, this is our priority. Lord, enable us to speak and proclaim your name. While you keep healing, while you keep doing miracles, let us speak the power of the gospel and give us courage and boldness that we may continue to speak. And I think they pray for boldness because they know they're going to need it. They know they don't have it in and of themselves. Maybe we look upon this church and these apostles and we say, I could never be that bold. I think they would say the same thing. Yeah, neither could we. But it's only by the Spirit's help and power that this happens. So they pray, God, we're going to need courage and boldness, so give it to us because we don't have it in and of ourselves. Make us bold to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that ought to be our prayer as a church and as Christians in our world. Make us bold to speak the name of Jesus Christ. And there are many places where we might feel hesitant to do so, scared to talk to family and friends, scared to talk to coworkers, scared to talk to neighbors. All of that fear of man we feel regularly. And a wonderful prayer for all of us, if we are going to be commissioned as disciples of Jesus, bearing witness to him, are we given that commission? Yes. So if we're given the commission to bear witness to Jesus, a central prayer for us is, Lord, give us boldness. Give us courage. Enable us to speak. I think that's a prayer that God answers, and he certainly does so here. They're given affirmation of the goodness of their prayer and that God will give them courage. It's almost kind of another Pentecostal moment. They don't speak in tongues, but the room shakes, the Spirit fills them, and they go on speaking. Will we ever face persecution? As Christians, as a church, will we face trials? We're dragged before courts to answer for our words. Will we be told not to speak in the name of Jesus? Will we be arrested? Our lives be threatened? I don't know. I don't have the answer for that. Maybe a more important question is, what will be our response, should that be the case? And we can look at the early church and see their response. How did the first Christians respond to their first trial? They affirm salvation only in Jesus. They refuse to be silent about Jesus. They pray for boldness to proclaim Jesus. May the Lord empower us to do the same. And we'll see that he's faithful to the church in Acts to do just that. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us boldness to speak. And by boldness and courage, Lord, we don't mean arrogance. We don't mean rudeness or obnoxiousness. We ask for a humble conviction to never be ashamed of Jesus Christ. That in all circumstances, whether good or bad, life-threatening or peaceful, that in all ways, Lord, 
you would give us a gentle courage and conviction to be a light for you, to take every opportunity given to us to bear witness about all that we've seen and heard about your Son and salvation in him. Lord, we repent. I repent of and ask for forgiveness for lack of courage. Where I've been afraid, where we've been afraid. And knowing our weakness, knowing our frailty, we ask for continued grace to be witnesses to you and salvation of your Son as we are called to be. Lord, we thank you that your church keeps going on despite all the threats, despite all the hardships, that you continue to build your church even now. We praise you. Amen.